I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke once again. Luke chapter 18. We are reading this morning from Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. And we will read through the end of the chapter and into chapter 19, verse 10. I'll be reading, as is our custom, out of the New King James Version. God's Word says, Then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, if I were to entitle my message, and I don't do that very often. I've been doing it on Facebook a little bit. And if you're not on our church's Facebook site, you should friend it or like it or whatever you do to it to make it so you get those notifications. I've been putting some titles in. I didn't this week. Um, It's not something I do often and and uh, try to actually avoid that but if i were to entitle this one it would be can you see jesus both of these individuals we're going to look at this morning had problems seeing christ because of their physical limitations but that did not stop them from being doing whatever was necessary whatever was required of them to overcome those physical limitations to be sure that they received what they desired from Jesus Christ. And it becomes a great study for us in understanding the determination of what genuine faith will exert itself in. Let's go, Lord, in prayer before we get into our study in Luke chapter 18. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. It is a privilege. It is precious. And it is to be done cautiously. And so, Lord, we pray for your help. We might be sober-minded. We might be attentive to your truth. That we might be ready in mind and heart, to receive this instruction. Lord, we pray that it might be truly yours from your word, that it might be guarded from error, from opinion, from man's thinking, that it might be inundated 
with yours by your Spirit's work in our midst this morning. Lord, we recognize that by our own intelligence, we are not capable of grasping your truth. By our own will, we are not uh, able, empowered to affect your truth in our life. And so we submit our will to your will. And we submit our intellect and strength to your spirit. And pray that you might perfect your work in us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Christ, of course, is on his way to Jerusalem for the passion that awaits him. We find him encountering people. We are coming across really the last, um, at least public, miracle that he's going to perform. There is going to be the healing of the ear that's cut off in the Gethsemane. Uh, And, of course, the ultimate miracle of his resurrection Uh, But here, in terms of the uh, ministry before multitudes, this is really the last recorded one in the Gospel of Luke. Um, And it correlates with really the last recorded one that we have. We would expect coming into Jerusalem that he would perform a, a wealth of miracles, but we find really that's not what goes on when he arrives in Jerusalem. Uh, And so when we see his ministry there, it's about teaching, it's about instruction, it's about driving out money changers, it's about engaging his enemies, it's about preparing his disciples for uh, his death, burial, and resurrection, it's about the Passover. All those things are wrapped up in that. And we really don't find him active in uh, a healing or casting out demons kind of ministry. And so this is really going to culminate that this morning. Uh, And we're going to find uh, this testimony here in Jericho. He has uh, been coming south from Galilee along the Jordan River uh, on the west side of the Jordan. He has come to Jericho, which is really at the base of the Jordan River. Uh, uh, If he had gone any farther south, he would be into the area of the Dead Sea. And so here at Jericho, he's going to take a, let's see, a right-hand turn and uh, head up to the ascent. Jericho sits about 700 feet below sea level. And so he is going to go, as he travels west, going uphill all the way. And he is going to now take a little time in Jericho to prepare himself for that ascent. Uh, the, the trip from Jericho to Jerusalem, uh, well, to the Mount of Olives, probably about 15 miles, uh, 15 to 17 miles. He's got to traverse still to get into Jerusalem. He, and he's got quite a climb ahead of him, not uncommon trip that's taken. And, but Jericho becomes a very important, influential place because of its proximity to Jordan, because of uh, this uh, opportunity to transition, to bring the Jordan Valley uh, agriculture, if you will, up into Jerusalem. And uh, it's a very well-populated city. Herod has just taken some time. Uh, in the past uh, few decades to rebuild or actually to build a new Jericho. And so there are really two Jerichos, and that's true even to this day. There are two Jerichos. There is the old Jericho and new Jericho. Uh, New Jericho is 2,000 years old. Old Jericho is a lot older than that. Uh, It goes way back. Uh, And so when we think of Jericho, usually what comes to our mind is... Class, the walls of Jericho with Joshua coming in, the walls of Jericho falling down. Uh, And, uh, of course, we know that Jericho was rebuilt at a heavy cost because of the curse that was placed on it. It would be rebuilt with the man's firstborn and youngest. And so, uh, and that is the case of how it was rebuilt, that the one who did that, but not New Jericho. New Jericho was not at that price for Herod. And so we find that, we, we, and that's, why are you giving me all this? Well, this is important background information. Because if you read through your synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each have an account 
of this uh, first of this last healing of Christ of the blind man receiving a sight or blind men. The difficulty here is in some of the details. In uh, Matthew and Mark, we have Jesus Christ performing this miracle on his way out of Jericho. Here in Luke, we have Jesus Christ performing this miracle on his way into Jericho. In Matthew, we have two men being healed. In Mark and in Luke, we have only one man. In fact, Mark names him as, as, and gives us specific information. And so we're, we're going to look at that here in a little bit. And when I say, well, here we have a problem. The Bible must be in error. Uh, there can, it cannot be both ways. Uh, but the fact is it can be and probably was. And uh, the likelihood is that all three are exactly correct. I say, okay, Pastor, how are you going to work this one out? Old Jericho, New Jericho. There is a passage between them where the old city ends, the new one begins. And in that area, there was a lot of activity. You would anticipate that Matthew and Mark writing largely to a Jewish audience, uh, would have referenced it to Old Jericho. Old Jericho was very Jewish. It was uh, constructed during, that, the, during the reign and, and during that time period, and it would have been associated much more strongly with, with the uh, Jewish element. New Jericho was built by Herod, and Herod's building was always according to Roman style. And Luke is writing to Theophilus, uh, in the Greek meaning friend of God, writing to a largely Gentile audience, uh, trying to present Jesus Christ to them. And so it does, shouldn't surprise us that Matthew and Mark would reference the exiting of old Jericho, which is to the north, and then Luke referencing the entrance into new Jericho, which is south. So Jesus Christ is coming from Galilee and traveling south. He would have gone through old Jericho first, and then into New Jericho, which meant that we could find the blind men as Jesus Christ is leaving Jericho and entering Jericho. Depending on which Jericho you're referencing in your uh, description of the region. Uh, we find uh, that this blind man hears a crowd coming by, as is going to be the case now for Christ, that uh, there is a crowd. And, of course, uh, you might say, well, why would he notice this? Uh, particularly during this time of year as we're coming into Passover, there would have been many pilgrims traveling to get to Jerusalem for Passover. In fact, um, during this time, there are an entire series of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent that the pilgrims would have sung and rehearsed with each other as they would be moving their way towards uh, Jerusalem, particularly from Jericho, to Jerusalem, hence the psalm of ascent, of going uphill, of going up to Jerusalem. And so we find uh, that, that the likelihood is, is that Jericho was a bustling area, bustling uh, with uh, pilgrims as well as uh, the whole uh, economy there. It was not a dead place at all. And yet here there was something unique about this multitude, whether it was its boisterousness, its size, um, it, its the, the uh, speech that was going on, there was something that, that gave this man, or these two men, uh, caught their attention. There's something unique, something unusual about this. And so he has uh, asked, what's going on? Who, who, why is this multitude? Why is this particular group of this nature? And of course, you and I can reference some idea of why a blind man would have that inclination to ask, not only because he can't see that, because his other senses would tell him uh, and perhaps be more sensitive to the distinction between crowds. That there are the normal crowds that pass by, there are the normal merchants that would have passed by and the crowds around them, but this one is unique. And it drew his attention. He heard this group and he asked what it all meant. What, what, what is going on. Something unique is happening here. And they tell him, the only thing unique about what's going on right now is Jesus of Nazareth is walking by. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. 
Okay. Now we come to a conclusion. We have to draw some conclusions. First of all, this man knows who Jesus of Nazareth is. He's heard about this one. And he's heard of what Jesus has done. It's going to be evident from his request, by his calling out to Jesus Christ. He is familiar with what Jesus has done for others in other places. He knows the name. He knows the power in that name, in that person. He knows the history to some degree. And so this moves him to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. A very simple request. But very full. He begins with a simple name, Jesus, but then he has a title, and he is the only one that we have recorded here in Luke that uses this title, Son of David. Don't you find that unusual? The only one who references him in this manner. Son of David. As Christ is about ready to come into Jerusalem, it is this one who begins this reference to him as the deliverer. As the one that they, that, that, that branch out of David. And here he was introduced to a man, Jesus of Nazareth. But he doesn't reference him that way. He says, no, Jesus, son of David. He understands that there is a messianic aspect to this person, Jesus Christ. He has somewhere along the line drawn this conclusion uh, that points to a knowledge, an understanding, an acceptance of this truth in his mind that this one is the Messiah. He isn't just a powerful prophet. He isn't just one who can heal me. He is much more than that. He is the Messiah we have longed for. He is the Son of David, the one we have looked for in this statement. And then he calls upon mercy from the Messiah. Deliverance. A statement of great humility. Have mercy or pity on me. And yet, just as soon as those words are out of his mouth, here come those. And we're not sure exactly who the those are. Many contend it was the disciples. Um, it doesn't stay here. If we go to Mark, let's read it in the Mark passage. Uh, Mark chapter 14. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Let's read it there. Oh, it's not 14, sorry. Why did I write? Mark 10. I read the wrong note. Verse 46. I had the right verse. I had the wrong chapter. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. It says, now when they, they came to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more. We find that there weren't just one or two this was not just one person leading the pack who took it upon himself to try to silence Bartimaeus. But in fact, there were many. Shh, just hush up. Just hush up. Don't bother him right now. And you wonder what was on their mind. What was on the mind of those who were trying to quiet this one who was seeking out deliverance from the son of David? Some would contend that they're motioning him to be quiet was a result of the title he used. That they were not ready to receive Jesus as this one son of David. That this in and of itself that, that betrayed his beliefs, and therefore, since it wasn't theirs at this point, they tried to hush him up to silence that title. Again, 
The motives behind this we could conjecture at all day, but it is necessary for us to see that there will always be those who will want to silence and push people away from Christ, even as they claim to follow Christ. Here these are, part of the multitude, who are kind of you know, creating a path for Jesus, if you will, along the route there through Jericho, and taking it upon themselves to push people aside to make room for Christ, failing to understand the whole purpose of Christ. That it is, in fact, our responsibility to not make room for Christ, but for bringing people to Him. And it's these individuals that Christ has always lifted up. Those who will do the extra to bring individuals to Him. That will dig through the roof of a synagogue to lower a man in before Christ. Who will do uh, send His servants and then tell His servants, don't even let Him come uh, to bring others to Christ. And here we find those who claiming to be part of this multitude trying to shush a man, trying to push him away. The disciples have already been caught once at this with the little children. And now we find it yet again. That we are setting up barriers for people to come to Christ instead of a path for people to come to Christ. We have a very strong warning here. This isn't the enemies of Christ that's doing this. These are those among His number. The ones who were keeping the children weren't the enemies of Christ. They were the disciples of Jesus. These are those that were making a way for Jesus, who thought they were doing a great service for Christ. And instead, what they were doing was trying to become a barrier between this man and the one who would deliver him. <laughs> and oh, how we rejoice that Bartimaeus was so determined. It's a sad state of affairs when the only way to Christ is to get through his disciples who are standing in the way. Yet before we are too condemning of them, Let's be careful to remind ourselves of how often we have gotten in the way of people coming to Christ. That our hypocritical living, that our sin, that our apathy, that our reactions that our self-importance became barriers to the old coming to know Christ. See, to some degree, we're all guilty in the same sense. And sometimes I think it's a miracle that people get saved when they are confronted with Christians of the caliber that they often are. When I talk with people about Christ and they reference you know, the church is full of hypocrites and, and this person who said they were a Christian acted this way or conducted their business this way and they said they were a Christian and, and, you know, they had the little fish symbol and they drove this way. That's why I don't have a fish symbol on the door. That's not why. It's hard to deal with that. And I just look at them and I say, well, you're right. Because the fact is that many times Christians don't live like Christians before unbelievers. And the accusation stands. But it's still no excuse. It's a condemnation on us. It is, it is clearly something we need to be attentive to. Am I a barrier to people coming to Christ? Are there things in my life that inhibit them because I act like the world, talk like the world, uh, work like the world. I do all these things like the world. And so the world looks at you and says, well, there's, you're no different than me. And brethren, that is a barrier for them coming to know Christ. And when Paul talks about, oh, I don't want to keep, I want to be all things to all men, he's not talking about uh, 
listening to their music or looking or dressing like them. It's about, I'm not going to allow anything of me to stand between them and Christ. I want to be a pathway, not a barrier. I want to be an avenue, not an orange barrel. That's what we are called to be. An avenue for the gospel, not a hindrance for the gospel. And so the indictment is still against us. And, and, I, and I tell the people that, yeah, I preach against that and I, and I don't like it either and, and, and neither does God. But you know what? Are you going to keep, let that keep you from heaven? And this is one of the stories I like to reference. is blind Bartimaeus. It's kind of funny that we call him blind Bartimaeus when he's not blind because he got his sight. Should be unblinded Bartimaeus who actually had better sight than most of the people around him, spiritually. He recognized who he was dealing with. And he didn't want anything to stop him from that kingdom, from that one who could deliver him and bring him into that very family of God. And so he cries out even louder, I'm not going to let your followers keep me from the greatest thing that you can give me, deliverance. And so finally, only by Jesus' direct command do they bring Bartimaeus to Christ. Jesus has to interrupt and say, bring him here. You see, we would say, oh, you know, that's not, that's not a good church member. That's not someone that's going to really build into your ministry too much. And Christ says, bring that one to me. Whatever prejudices they were there, whatever attitudes that were there among the many, Jesus Christ overrides them directly and says, Bring that man to me. And by doing so, he is affirming Bartimaeus' declaration. First of all, he's affirming that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of David. And that he is capable and interested in meeting the cry that came from Bartimaeus' mouth. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He asks for his sight. That's granted because he believes Jesus can give him sight. Incredible request. I want to see. I say, well, of course that's what a blind man asks. Any blind man ever ask you that? Has any blind person ever asked you, can you give me my sight? It's just not something blind people tend to ask people. But when you're dealing with the Son of David, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, you can ask this kind of question. I would like to receive my sight. An impossible thing. And yet God is in that business of doing impossible things. Jesus Christ, of course, simply grants it to him, but he conditions that your faith has made you well. A faith that says, I will not be held back. I have seen this one, I have heard of this one, and now I have this opportunity in this place that I have stationed myself, performed my responsibility in society, which is to go out and beg at the gates. And that was their job, that was their expectation um, and uh, for those with blindness and other physical ailments that prevented them from work. And uh, that's, hence it was laid upon the Jewish person to give alms to such individuals as part of their worship. And this was all part of the structure that was in Israel. And in that condition, he was not going to be deterred. He already had one handicap keeping him from Christ, and that was his sight. He was not going to allow these others to further prevent him. And Christ responds to that kind of faith. It says, nothing keeps me from crying out to God. Well, then we would have that kind of faith of Bartimaeus. It says, while others say, shush, shush, I will cry all the more, Lord, help me. And 
And it is this that Jesus Christ seeks for us to model this kind of faith. Of course, we look at the expected result in verse 43. He received his sight, but it doesn't stop there. And I say, well, he just wanted a physical healing. But no. Remember his declaration, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the evidence here is that when he received his sight, it says he followed him. Not just for a step or two. He was glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And you hear Bartimaeus, the one who was told to shush and to kind of tuck yourself away. Christ doesn't have time for you. You're not one to be brought forward. And your declaration is kind of unnerving to us that he's the son of David. Is the one that suddenly is the very catalyst that brings all of these people to glorifying God. Becomes that individual that God does a great work in, not just physically, but spiritually. And all the people are glorifying God here and praising God in the midst. And they're passing through Jericho. And of course, things have gotten really ruckus by now. you got a man who can now see. We've got a second individual as well. And let me just say on the side, why is why two Gospels only deal with one and one deal with the other one? Uh, the, the apparent indication is that Bartimaeus became well known in the church, um, that uh, perhaps even in the leadership levels, uh, and the indication is that the, the very possibility was that the one who was with him um, either did not continue to follow after Christ um, or uh, some other event happened to him that uh, uh, brought Mark and Luke to uh, not include him in their Gospels. But Bartimaeus is one of the few that Christ has healed with a name. If you look back and see how many were named there's a handful, and Bartimaeus is one of them. Many of them is just he healed many. He drove a demon out of this man. They might tell you where he's from, but very few are named for us, and Bartimaeus is one of them. And Mark's the only one that does this, names him, and that's evidence that he became uh, some uh, position within the church, some uh, well-known individual, uh, and followed Christ all his days. And became the very one that led men to praise God. And very likely followed Christ right into Jerusalem all the way. But we are still in Jericho. And we still have another man that can't see Jesus. First man couldn't see Jesus. had a physical limitation of blindness. Would let that stop him. Wouldn't let others say, shush. Let's tuck you away out of sight. He wasn't about to let the followers of Jesus stop him from becoming a recipient of the mercy of Jesus Christ and the power that is there. We come to the second one. And we have presaged this already in Christ's statement about uh, who enters the kingdom of heaven. In a statement about who is justified after a prayer, Jesus Christ has presaged Zacchaeus. Remember he talked about there was two men, one very self-righteous and got up there and prayed, oh, I thank you that I could do this and I could be that and I'm not him and, and uh, I'm so righteous and I'm so godly and I'm so obedient and not like him. Um, and then there was the other guy that was praying there and he was a publican, a sinner with his face to the ground, crying out, beating his chest, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So we presaged a little bit Zacchaeus. And here is Zacchaeus coming on the scene. Sometimes I kind of like to think that maybe Zacchaeus prayed like that not so long before he met Jesus. That's just Kirk. He was a chief tax collector. You thought tax collectors were bad. He was their boss. A chief tax collector 
would have had responsibility for really the whole region and would have traveled extensively, finds himself here in Jericho, um, which would have been a place that would have been the center for that region um, and uh, was a notorious center. Everyone knew it. Uh, they easily recognized him. He was a man of great influence, a man of great wealth, but also a man that did what politicians do, take advantage of their situation and make money off of it. Surprise. That wasn't invented by American political schemes. That's been around. But he has a physical handicap as well. He's short. And he can't see Jesus. The crowd is certainly by now in full gear and full excitement. They're glorifying God. They're praising Him. There's, there's, a, there's a, 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 a electricity in the air, so to speak. And, and Zacchaeus is prepared to be a part of that. He wants to see Him. And he cannot see Jesus because of this limitation. And so he again maps out the route in his mind. He says, well, he's going to head from here to there. And I know a tree. And he runs ahead, finds that tree. Of course, you know the story of Zacchaeus. He climbs up into the sycamore tree for his Lord to see. Interesting, the song. He wanted his, the Lord to see. You see, he had already recognized that there was great value in this one. And that's why in my thought of Zacchaeus, he is one who had already prayed that kind of a prayer to God, saying, oh, I'm a sinner. He had already bowed his head and beat his breast. He was already prepared to receive Christ. He has already recognized that. I'm convinced of that. For nowhere does Christ, do we have any instruction for him, and yet we find Zacchaeus ready at a instantaneously almost it seems to perform the very acts that God required of others that caused them to turn and walk away. Remember the other rich ones that he saw in their hearts and saw that their wealth was important to them. It says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come, follow me. And they went away sorrowful. Zacchaeus was already ready to do that and Christ never commanded him to do it. He did it with free accord. We're going to see that here in a little bit. And so my contention is Zacchaeus was already in that condition of desiring to receive his Lord and wanted to see him, wanted to have some contact there. And he runs ahead and he's not going to let this again. He's not going to let the disciples, the followers of Jesus, be a barricade between him and Christ. Now, the first instance of being a barricade was intentional. They were actively trying to hush up Bartimaeus. This one is unintentional. Just by their body size, they were creating a barrier between Zacchaeus and Jesus. And yet, with some sensitivity, if we were interested in the concern of those around us, at some point, you would think someone would have reached around and been willing to give a shorter person room in front of him. After all, you can see right over their heads. Right? You think that somewhere along the line, but this was Zacchaeus. He already had every benefit in life, right? Because he had wealth. But that wasn't satisfying Zacchaeus. He wanted Jesus. And here, the crowd was in his way. Runs ahead. He's not going to go to a housetop. He's not going to go out onto a porch. We find a little humility in Zacchaeus. Rich man, but humble enough to recognize I'm going to have to overcome this and climbs a tree to watch. Now we might envision him way up in a tree. Uh, the sycamore trees and grow horizontally a lot and very early on. In fact, one of the things I wanted to do when I visited Israel was I wanted to climb one. And I did. And in Getty, there was one there. And we were on our way up into there and there was this tree and they stopped to do a lecture. And so um, all the benches were filled and so I climbed up in the tree and listened. 
And I just kind of sat, because the branches go like this. They don't go like this, where we think of they're low-lying, they're very heavy, and they go horizontal. And so he wasn't high up in a tree. He was probably only about four or five feet up. But it put him head and shoulders above everyone else. The likelihood is that, that people were, people's heads were right about at his waist or knees. They could still touch and, and interact with them. But he sat up in this tree. Jesus comes by, knows his name. Look at it. Comes up, walks right in that way. He comes to the place, stopped, looked up, saw him, said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today, I must stay at your house. No invitation is given. Christ knows his heart. They didn't sing just as I am four times, every verse. You see, the man had already taken measures to remove the barriers between him and Christ. He wanted to see Jesus. His heart was in that place, in that condition. And Jesus Christ comes and stops and there's a multitude around him. But he has concern and interest in this one, Zacchaeus, one that is despised by all others, ridiculed, who are dis- who disdain him. I mean, he's probably taken most of them for a ride or had others do it on his behalf by proxy. And we find him uh, stopping and saying, I'm coming to your house. I'm inviting myself over. Zacchaeus was thrilled, made haste, came down, received him joyfully. He had already taken measures to not be prevented from seeing Jesus, to overcome his physical handicaps, the handicaps created by others around Jesus, and he's going to overcome them and desire after Christ. And the miracle that Jesus talked about has just occurred. I said, miracle just occurred? Yes. Just as impossible as it is for blind men to receive his sight, is it for rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven? You remember? But in the, when the disciples asked the question, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven if the rich men can't, the rich men that the disciples had in their mind were the Pharisees, the religious rich. They thought if they can't enter the kingdom of heaven, who then can be saved? And Jesus Christ says, well, it's impossible. They can't. No, you know. But God does impossible things. With God, all things are possible. And here we have a rich man that is very different than the rich man in the minds of the disciples when they ask the question. This is a rich man who got that way, at least from most of society's consideration, um, illegitimately. He got that way by taking advantage of the poor and by, by, uh, uh, by becoming a lackey of the Romans. He got that way by... by going with the enemy. And a miracle happens. Just as powerful a miracle as the blind man receiving his sight is Zacchaeus' next statements. Verse 8. Look, Lord, I'm ready to follow you with every resource I have. I'm willing to prove it. I'm willing to put my money where my faith is. You thought I was going to say mouth, didn't you? No, it's where his faith was. He hadn't really said anything yet. Read it. He ran ahead, climbed a tree. Um, Christ looks up, sees him, calls him by name. He climbs down. Received him joyfully. There's probably some greeting there, but it's not recorded for us. Um, there's the disdain of the others, you know, trying to condemn Jesus. And Zacchaeus finally speaks. Look, Lord. Half of my goods I'm giving to the poor right now, right off the bat. 
half of everything I have given away. You might say, well, if you're very rich, you can give away half and still have a lot. Ah, but he's not done. Everyone I have defrauded, everyone that that I have uh, taken advantage of, anyone that I have uh, taken more than I should, I'm going to restore them fourfold, which was a command of Scripture and other portions, this fourfold return uh, and expectation. And so he's going to do that. And Christ recognizes what's going on here. Whether the crowd recognizes it or not, and the crowd isn't ready to accept this, by the way, they've shown that. Jesus recognizes that a wonderful thing has happened, just as wondrous as the blind man receiving his sight, is Zacchaeus making Jesus his Lord. Much has been made over the activity of Zacchaeus, but what he is seeking to demonstrate before Jesus and before the crowd is the genuineness of his faith, of his desire to follow Jesus. And hence, Jesus' statement, today salvation has come to this house, not because of what he's giving away of his poor, because he's a son of Abraham. That being that he has joined the family of God. That's why salvation has come to this house, because this one has joined my family, and he's acting like it. In fact, he's acting more like my family than you people. You are the multitude who are shushing people and becoming a barrier of people to coming to Christ. He's becoming more like it than you. There's no hypocrisy in this man. He puts his money where his faith is. And yes, we're not the first culture around. Capitalism isn't the first uh, economic system that uh, elevated money to the point of deification. It was there back then too. He is turning his back on that God and giving himself entirely to the one true God. And salvation came to him. And he made Jesus his Lord. And then finally, this verse that we quote without necessarily knowing the context always, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That wasn't a statement for Zacchaeus. That was a statement for the people who said, I can't believe he's going to Zacchaeus' house. Does he know he's a sinner? Doesn't he know what kind of character he's associating himself with? He's a criminal. He's just a legal criminal. He's a guy that does whatever the Romans ask him to do. How can the Messiah of Israel associate with an agent of Rome? It went against their political sensitivities. It went against their, their, their sensitivities of what is just and right. It went against all of that. All of these prejudices that they had towards Zacchaeus. And Christ just overcomes them. And Christ's statement to them when they're over there whispering and saying and complaining. It's not like that. They complain. He's gone to be a guest of the man who is a sinner. And here are they, all this multitude who one minute ago, one minute ago, were glorifying God for giving sight to a blind man, one minute later, were complaining against the one who just gave sight to the blind. Put it together. I know there's a chapter break in the midst of this, but put these things together. In one minute's time, the multitude went from glorifying God to complaining against Him. Sound familiar? <laughs> Does it? Oh, we're all susceptible to this. And so this statement, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, was an indictment against the crowd that said, how dare he go over there with Zacchaeus? What's he doing hanging out with a sinner like that? Doesn't he know? I mean, he's a Roman collaborator. 
We're going to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom. What does he need Roman collaborators for? The Son of Man came to save the lost. He came not only to save them, but to seek them. And this is our command. This is what we are called to do, is to seek and to save the lost. For we are the agents of Jesus Christ. And how dare any of our political, economic, social, uh, ethnic prejudices get in the way of that activity of seeking the lost. Yes, there are people out there today who smell bad, who do bad, who are not pretty to look at, who we would prefer to ignore and push off into the fringes of society and tuck them away and shush them. But Jesus calls upon us to seek and save. There are those that we despise for the injury they've done to us and ours that Jesus wants us to seek and save. Zacchaeus knew he was lost, not because he was short. Zacchaeus knew he was lost. And he wanted to see Jesus. And that kind of faith that says no obstacle will stand between me and seeing Christ. That kind of faith that says I will put all my resources at his disposal. I'll obey him. Though the world would call me foolish for doing so. That is the kind of faith that brings salvation to a house. That makes you part of the family of God. Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus are two wonderful examples of a faith that we are called upon not only to model or to be an example of, but to live. And then, not only do we have the example of Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus to follow, we also have a warning to avoid. Oh, pray and work that we might diligently make sure that we are not barriers between men and Jesus. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, that we might be paths for others to come to Christ.